Well, good morning. Oh, wow. Okay. We're ready. That's awesome. Uh, well, as AJ mentioned, my name is Jonathan Suggs. I'm a Generation Link resident here at the church, and I'm also the Young Adult Ministry Coordinator, uh, which means I get to spend a lot of time with some of like the 20-year-olds here at our church, kind of post-college group. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. Honestly, they're so active and ministering to each other half the time that I feel like they're going to put me out of a job sometimes, so take it easy on me, guys. But uh, it's, it's fun. I enjoy it, and it's my privilege to be able to come up here and preach God's Word for you this morning. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. Uh, we're going to continue our series in 2 Corinthians this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew right in front of you. And uh, I think it's on page 907 is our passage this morning. So if you've been tracking with us through this series, you might remember that uh, one of the things Paul's been talking about in these first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians is uh, what validates his ministry as a gospel minister, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. What validates that? What gives him the credentials to be able to do that? What gives any gospel minister the credibility to be able to bring the gospel forth with authority? That's what we've been looking at so far. And last week, we saw from Steve Heron what Paul's kind of own personal view of his ministry is. And we saw that he's able to be able to minister God's word because he is one who's received mercy from God. And so he, now he takes part in that as well. Well, this morning, Paul's going to give us a little bit of, of Christian realism, right? He's going to show us that gospel ministry is not just about glory and strength and beauty and power, but there's real affliction and trials and suffering that's involved in that. And so Paul is going to look at his own life and his own experiences and put them before us as an example in that way. And if we look at Paul's ministry kind of as a whole, one of the words we could use to describe it is suffering. From the beginning of his conversion in uh, Acts 9, we see that God tells a disciple that he's going to show Paul how much he has to suffer for his name. And then that reality, that theme, goes through Acts and follows Paul into every city. <clears throat> and it also goes into his, uh, into his epistles. And he brings up these experiences and talks about it and teaches through it. And I'm just going to, you don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to read a couple of these examples from Acts. In Acts 14, starting in verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. I love that. Then in Acts 20, or sorry, Acts 16, starting in verse 20, says, And when they had brought them, that's Paul and Silas, to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. These are just two examples in Acts where suffering and trials were in front of Paul's face over and over and over again. He even recounts, you may remember, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. These are just a snapshot of some of the things that Paul experienced in his apostolic ministry. But we're given people throughout scripture and even church history like, like the Pauls and the Davids and the Jobs and the, even the Josephs <clears throat> to be examples for people like us who don't experience that same type of affliction and suffering on a day-to-day basis, right? Most of us aren't Middle Eastern missionaries going to, un, going to towns where Christ has not yet been preached. That's not most of our lot, but it was for Paul. And I think Paul realizes that he's one of these examples. And so he can put his experiences in front of us to show us, to teach us how we can endure just as Paul was able to do. So don't you want to know how someone like a Paul, like a Job, was able to endure such tribulation and suffering and trials and honestly just the day-to-day experiences of being a Christian? Like, that's hard for us. We feel that. How does Paul do that? And he's going he's gonna to show us that it's not so much some of the things that we look at, like our strength and our willpower and our grit, that if I just grit my teeth hard enough and power through it enough that maybe we'll be able to get through to the other side and endure to not lose heart. Paul says, no, it's, it's actually none of those things. What gives Paul the ability to endure in his ministry is actually God's power and God's promises that give Paul perspective. So, so if, you're, if you're an outliner, there's your three Ps right there, all right? God's, God's power and God's promises that give Paul the perspective that he needs to endure, to not lose heart. And honestly, we need this, don't we? Like all of us, even this week, I guarantee most of us in this room are going to be faced with the temptation to, to lose heart, to give up maybe in our Christian walk in general, but maybe it's more just specific things like ministering to your coworkers and they don't seem like they're responding. And man, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of it. When can I quit? What does Paul, what can Paul show us about what we need to endure in the Christian life? To endure in each of the little ministries that all of us have in our day-to-day life, in our families, in our workplace, even in our own neighborhoods. That's what we're gonna see this morning. All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go ahead and jump in and see what God has for us in his word. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us. Father, thank you that you've given us your word that we can learn from, that we can come to as, um, as broken vessels, realizing that we are in complete need of your power, God. So God, would you show us this morning through the example of Paul and through your word that um, that you have the power and that your promises are sufficient to help us endure um, and hold up your name even to the end. Uh, God, use this passage to make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all in 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to start in verse 7. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now remember, for... Over the last chapter, Paul has been talking about the immense, immaculate glory of this new covenant ministry that he has. Back in chapter 3, as Steve Lindemeyer preached through, uh, we saw that 
Paul's ministry is superior to that of Moses. It's more glorious than even the old covenant. We see that it had the power to transform. It has the power to give us freedom. It has the power to give us boldness, to, to unveil our eyes, to see spiritual realities, to, speak, to see Christ, who he actually is. And then Steve showed us last week through uh, the first part of chapter 4 that this gospel ministry is actually even able, through God's power, to open blind eyes, to open dark hearts, to put the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into dead hearts. That this is a, an amazing ministry. This is an amazing gospel that God has given us. And Paul even calls it here a treasure. That this gospel by which we have is an invaluable gift that God has given us, right? That this thing is priceless. And, and we as Christians get to carry that day in and day out. We carry it everywhere we go. It's a treasure. It's nothing short of amazing. And then Paul draws a stark contrast between this immaculate treasure that God has given us to these not-so-immaculate containers. He calls them jars of clay. Now, back in Paul's time, these uh, jars of clay are not like what we think about today, right? They weren't, you walk down to anthropology and you had to buy it for $200, okay? These things were super common. They've been found in every excavation site in the Middle East. Every household had them. I mean, you put grain and oils and food in them, and they were so common because they were just so breakable. Like, they would get scratched and beat up and cracked, and you would just toss it out and get a new one. Think like, think like Tupperware, right? Like, you put spaghetti in Tupperware, and somehow it's stained red for eternity. I don't know how. It's one of life's greatest mysteries. But you don't cry about it, you just throw away, right? Because you can go get another three-pack for $4 at Walmart. Well, Paul says it's the same similar thing here, that we carry this amazing treasure on the one hand, and yet, on another hand, I'm like a cracked spaghetti-stained Tupperware. There's nothing significant about me. I'm easily broken. Not saying that gospel ministers don't have any value. Not saying they're not useful. They had a purpose but they're fragile. Now, if we're honest, if I'm honest, doesn't that rub us the wrong way a little bit? Don't we think that like, someone like Paul, shouldn't he get the best treatment? I mean, look what he's put forth. Shouldn't he just be this pristine, amazing container that can take the gospel with power to people who haven't heard it yet, and when they see him, they'll surely repent and trust in Jesus, because look how amazing Paul is, right? Don't we feel that? We want that. I want life to be up and to the right. I want it to be from glory to glory, and power, and strength, and beauty, and smooth speech, and all these things. Paul feels that temptation. We feel that temptation. The Corinthians felt that temptation, because these, these what Paul would call later, these super apostles, among them, had that. They had this prosperity and this wealth and the beauty and the honor. And they look at Paul and they say, oh, poor little Paul. He's trying so hard over there. But he's just so weak. But look at us. We've got it all together, right? And Paul says, no. Actually, God's power is displayed in the, in the distance, the, the value distance between the treasure of the gospel and my weakness and my frailty. Look at verse 7, or the rest of verse 7. 
to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You know what the problem is with clean, shiny, pristine containers? They, they, they can distract from the treasure that they hold. They can get in the way. And that's a big temptation for us as Christians, isn't it? That I might draw attention to myself and not to Jesus Christ. Not to the one that has opened my eyes and given me life. Man, I feel that. I feel that right now. <laughs> it's a real temptation. But it's one of the most hypocritical things that we can do as Christians, isn't it? That we might draw people's eyes to ourselves and portray as if power comes from us? So we, we don't just go from strength to strength, acting like we're buttoned up and have everything put together. But Paul says we embrace our weakness. We don't ignore it. So Paul's going to show us how this has looked so far in his own life. He's going to give us four contrasts in the next few verses. And in each one of these contrasts, on the one side, he's going to show the tremendous amount of suffering and trials that uh, he's experienced as a, an apostle of Christ. But on the other side, he's going to show God's immense power to preserve him in the midst of those. And that God's power is displayed in these two contrasts. So look at verse 8 and into verse 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, we're struck down, but not destroyed. Christians, is it normal to feel afflicted and perplexed in daily life? Yes. Is it ever normal to feel confused about what God's doing in our lives? Yeah, Paul seems to think so. We are constantly bumping up with this reality that this world is not what we want it to be. That it's broken. You remember that place in, uh, in The Princess Bride when uh, Buttercup looks at Wesley and she's like, you're mocking my pain, Wesley. And Wesley looks at Buttercup and he says, life is pain, Highness, and anyone who's telling you different is selling something. That's what Paul's saying. Life is pain. It is weakness at times. That what, what, is, what is God doing when, like Hannah and I, just found termites in our house? What is he doing there? I don't know. What, what's he doing when your children grow up and begin to drift away from the gospel that you've been instilling in them from when they were young? What's God doing when your child gets diagnosed with cancer, when a loved one passes away? We're constantly bumping up into this, the brokenness of this world. We feel it with Paul. And yet, that's only half the story. That's only half the story. That's right, that's only one side of the column that Paul's given us. On the other side of the column is the fact that we're not ultimately crushed. We're not driven to despair. We're not forsaken. We're not destroyed. The, the Christian life is really found between both of these two points. On the one side, we all know it. We're, we're faced with weakness and frailty day in and day out. No matter how much we try to look buttoned up, no matter how much we want to put together, we're faced with the reality that we are weak, frail, jars of clay. But on the other side, we can't forget that, that God has been gracious in every one of our lives. The fact that we're all here today is a testament that God has been merciful. 
right? That we're not ultimately crushed. We're not driven to, to despair. We're not forsaken. We're not destroyed. And this isn't because we look within ourselves and, and find the strength and the power. Like you hear on those great athlete, like motivation videos, like you can do it. Look within your heart. That's not what Paul says. This isn't God's power even in the place of our weakness. This is God's power in the midst of our weakness so that his power would be on full display. Paul makes this even more vivid going into verse 10 through 12. Look at that with me. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now what's fascinating here is that Paul actually gives two different words for death. Uh, The first one he uses in verse 10 is the word necrosis, uh, which is not so much focusing on the final result of death, which the second one is referring to that. The first one more gives the picture of the process of dying. If you have a a different version, your version might even say uh, the dying of Jesus in verse 10. That's the picture Paul's giving. In, In a sense, he's saying that my life, my everyday life, is like Jesus's path and his passion and his crucifixion leading up to the cross. That Jesus, Jesus was tried uh, unjustly, just as he was um, set before Pilate and falsely accused, just as he was beaten and whipped and, uh, what else happened to Jesus? Beaten and whipped and ended up having to carry his cross even up to Golgotha and then crucified on a cross. Paul looks at that and says, yeah, that's, that's my everyday life too. That's what I experience. But just as Jesus' cross brought forth life, right, Christians? Just as Jesus' cross brought forth life, so Paul's ministry brings forth life in others. You see that in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's the economy of gospel ministry. That's how it works. And if your life is built around constantly sidestepping and avoiding pain and weakness and frailty, then I, I gotta break it to you. You're not going to see the power of God at work in your life. You won't see the life of Jesus working through other people. You may feel like you have it put together, but you will not encounter the God of heaven and earth who can look into dead hearts and give light. It's costly. It requires something of us. Obedience is costly. Ministry is costly. Investing in people is costly. So then how in the world did Paul keep going? Right, we feel how hard that is. We feel it. So how in the world did Paul keep going? Because he has endured far more than we, most of us have in this room. To start with, he didn't even have air conditioning. All right? So what do you and I need in order to continue to endure, to not lose heart? What we're gonna see in a second is that we need a faith that is rooted in a knowledge of who God is and what he's done and what he will do. We need a faith that's rooted in knowledge and who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. So we're gonna see a shift here in Paul's writing, okay? He's gonna 
go from talking about his experiences so far to kind of shifting more to looking at his hopes and his expectations and his beliefs, his faith. We're going to see Paul do what he's been doing in this letter so far, just opening up his heart just a little bit more to the Colossians. So look at verse 13 with me. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. So Paul is quoting from the Old Testament right here. And if you have cross references in your Bible, you might see that it's uh, Psalm 116 that he's quoting. So if you have a Bible, keep a finger in 2 Corinthians and flip over to Psalm 116 with me real quick. Psalm 116. Now in Psalm 116, we can tell from the context and what's some of the language within the psalm that the psalmist has endured some type of serious affliction. He's been brought to the absolute end of himself, a lot like Paul. But he called out to God and God miraculously delivered him. So Psalm 116 is him kind of recounting that, him praising God, exalting God for God's deliverance. I'm going to wait for you to get Psalm 116. We're going to look at a little bit of this real quick. Help us understand what Paul is referring to. Psalm 116, starting in verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of shale laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You can hear, you can probably see how Paul would be thinking of this psalm, right? That is, he's recounting some of the afflictions and suffering and perplexing situations that he's been in. He starts thinking through the Old Testament scriptures that he knows, and he thinks of Psalm 116. And the verse that comes next in verse 10 is the one that Paul actually quotes. He says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's literally word for word what we see in 2 Corinthians. He says, I believed, so I spoke. But then notice Paul doesn't quote what the psalmist quotes after. He doesn't say, I'm greatly afflicted. So Paul's primarily not trying to exposit Psalm 116 for us right here. What he wants to show and draw attention to is the connection between believing and speaking. He wants to show that what we speak is a reflection of what we believe. And that true, genuine faith speaks. All right, so flip back to 2 Corinthians with me. In context, what is it that Paul's talking about here? What's the content of his speech? It's the gospel, right? It's this treasure he holds in jars of clay. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is able to speak. So what is he saying? He's saying, I am able to keep preaching, keep speaking, keep living my life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, despite the affliction, despite pain and suffering and the trials of everyday life, because of my faith in God, because of my faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel, because of my faith in the spirit and his power. 
That faith enables me to go and continue and to endure and to not lose heart. Now look at verse 14. Knowing, knowing. Paul's faith is grounded in what he knows. What he knows is informing his feelings, it's informing his expectations, his hopes, his desires. What is informing your faith, Christians? What's informing your hopes, your desires, and your expectations? Is it what you see driving down the road? Is it what you see on social media? Is it what you fill your ears with on the news? What is informing your expectations? Is it from this book? Is it from the inspired word of God? Paul's going to give us two guaranteed future realities that enables him to continue to keep moving forward. These two are the resurrection of believers and the ultimate glory of God. The resurrection of believers and the ultimate glory of God. Look at that first one with me. Look at the rest of verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now Paul has already given an extensive treatment of the resurrection in another letter that he wrote to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. And in context there, you have people within this church who are saying that the resurrection isn't actually going to come, that it's a hoax. Paul's just, he's blowing smoke, all right? It's not actually going to happen. And Paul gives an incredible line of logic to prove the resurrection. And then he also gives eyewitnesses. He says, there's 500 people, go talk to them about it, all right? They've seen the risen Lord. But then he also gives some of his own personal experience and why the resurrection matters to Paul. This is what he says. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Sound familiar? Sound like 2 Corinthians 4? I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's Paul saying? He's saying that if there is no resurrection, then why would he continue to endure what he's, what he's enduring? Why would I die today if I'm going to actually die tomorrow? But because the resurrection is a guaranteed future reality rooted in God's promises, rooted in Christ as our forerunner who's gone before us, because that's true, Paul is freed. He's free to continue to go. He's free to continue to, to die, to carry the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might come from it. And if we were really people who believed that Jesus Christ actually, physically rose from the dead and that he is coming back to change this perishable body to become like his imperishable body, then Siddle Square, shouldn't we be the most free people in the world? Like, shouldn't that reality actually affect the way we live day to day? That we're free. We're free to give up our money and our time, our, our homes. We're free to give up our silent car rides for a phone call to someone who needs it. We're free to take someone to coffee and pay for it. Like, we're free to sacrifice. 
We're free because the resurrection is true, because Christ is coming back. So that's the first reality that Paul can lay claim on. He can lean on. He says, that keeps me to the end, knowing that Jesus is coming back for me and for you and to take us with him. Now look at the second one. That God will be glorified. Look at verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I think most of us here can testify to the fact that God is committing to saving his people, right? That God delights in saving his people. Well, Paul knows that graciously saved people also become worshiping people. That that's the natural result. That's what we see all throughout scripture. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> we want to worship and praise God. But we see that all throughout scripture. We see that in, in Exodus 15, right? As the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea. What is the first thing they do? They praise God. They exult. We saw this uh, when we went through First and Second Samuel, or First Samuel a few years ago. When David is delivered from Saul, what does he do? He exults. He praises the Lord. And we also see that this is where all of time and history and everything and all of creation is ultimately heading to this one endpoint where God will be glorified all eternity, where his people will cry out, salvation belongs to our God, and worthy is the lamb who is slain. We know that because we spent two years in Revelation, right? But this is all of where time and history is headed, ultimately. Paul's rooted in Old Testament promises, like Habakkuk 2.14. I might be familiar with this one. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Would y'all agree that there is nothing better than seeing and joining God's people give thanks to God? Right? That is the greatest treasure that we can have. And we're going to take part in that in a few minutes. We've taken part in it already some this morning. And I just want you to consider for a moment when we do that what we're doing is taking part in this reality. It's a shadow of the things to come when in full we will praise God for all of eternity with joyous, overflowing hearts because of who God is and what he's done. That's, this is one reason why gathering as a body of believers is so crucial for you and me to continue to endure, to not lose heart to the end. Because it does something super profound when all of us come together and we see one another and we join with one another in one voice worshiping God. It does something to us. It does something when you look across and you see the person who just lost a loved one or the exhausted mom and dad or the, the brand new believer, it does something in your heart when you see them worshiping the Lord and you join with them in it. It's a picture of what we will taste in full. And Paul's able to look at that and say, that is a reason for me to continue to move on because I know it's guaranteed that God will save his people and God will be glorified for all eternity and I wanna be a part of it. That's something worth enduring for. And all of this ultimately leads to what Paul says in verse 16. 
so we do not lose heart. You think Paul was ever tempted to lose heart? Yeah, betcha he was. He's human. He endured far more than most of us endure. Yeah, he absolutely was tempted to lose heart, but he doesn't. And not because of his strength, not because of his willpower, not because of his grit and determination, but because of God's power in the place of his weakness and because of God's secure promises. And Paul says, I can look at both of those and know that I can keep going. Paul said this already, the same phrase. Uh, you may remember last week as Steve was preaching in verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, there, as Steve's preached last week, Paul's primarily able to not lose heart because he knows that he's someone who's received mercy from God. And he's able to look back throughout his life, and especially in the day of his conversion, and know that God has been merciful, abundantly merciful to him. But today, we're seeing that Paul is not so much saying I can... Uh, not lose heart because of God's past mercy, but because of God's future promises. And these are the, the two bookends of the Christian life, right? That I can look back and I can see that God has been merciful to me. And I can look forward and say that God's promises are secure and they're sure that I will be resurrected, that God will be glorified. And we can, we're steadied and we're anchored by these two great bookends of the Christian life things you can hold to, things you can take to the bank on Monday morning. These are realities that have profound effect. So if God is merciful to us in the past and, we, and that can keep us from losing heart and God's promises are sure in the future and that can keep us from losing heart, then what kind of perspective should that give us right now? In the day-to-day, -day, in every circumstance, in every conversation, in every car ride, what should that do to the way that I view what's happening in the world? Should I view it just based off sense reality, like what I can touch and what I can see and taste and hear? Or is there something else going on behind the scenes? And that's what Paul's going to go to next. Look at the rest of verse 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now it's typically thought what Paul's talking about here is that the outer self is his body and his inner self is kind of his soul and his mind and his heart. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about actually. I don't think there's a body-soul dichotomy going on right here because there's more to us than just our bodies that is actually wasting away each day. That the outer self that Paul's talking about here, we're about to get deep, right? This outer self that Paul's talking about right here is a whole person. The inner self is the whole person. So what is Paul talking about? Raise your hand if you've ever read, like 10th grade English class read, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay, like four. Great, this is gonna go well. Oh, I think there's a movie. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie. I got like five more, awesome. All right, this is gonna land big time, I can tell. <clears throat> so, let me give you a short synopsis. In Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there's this esteemed scientist doctor named Dr. Jekyll. And he's very astute, so he's able to realize within himself that there's a part of him that's really evil, and he likes doing evil. But then he also knows that there's a part of himself that's really good, and he likes doing good. And these two parts of himself go to war. They're at conflict all the time in his conscience. And every time he does evil, he wishes he didn't because the part of him that likes doing good wanted him to do good, and vice versa. So 
being a fictional scientist, Dr. Jekyll, decides that he's going to make a potion that when, when he drinks it, a part of him is isolated, and it's that evil part. This was really advanced science back in the 1800s when it was written. And so when he takes this potion, the part of him that becomes on display and takes form is Mr. Hyde. And it's this evil character, like the epitome of evil. People look at him, they just want to like throw up. This is Mr. Hyde. And then Mr. Hyde would go away and, Mr. and Dr. Jekyll would come back. And it's back and forth, back and forth throughout the, throughout the book until the end, Mr. Hyde starts becoming dominant and he starts wanting to take over. And so he starts taking over Dr. Jekyll, and eventually Mr. Hyde becomes the true, true Dr. Jekyll. And I won't tell you how it ends. You should go read it yourself. It's a classic. In a sense, this is what Paul's talking about here, but in reverse. That there's a part of us that's of this world. It's of Adam. It's going the way that Adam went to death. That this part of us is day by day deconstructing, decomposing, dying. And that's painful. We feel that. We feel the pain of having to put that part of us that loves the things of this world to death. But then on the other hand, there's this part of us that's not in Adam, but it's in Christ. It's not going the way of Adam to death. It's going the way of Christ to new life. And this part of us, this inner self, is, Paul says, is being renewed day by day, moment by moment, conversation by conversation. And these are some of the, this is the reality that's taking place behind the scenes in, in every moment of our life. This is the perspective that Paul is able to have. Well, hold on. Lost my place. So this, this really puts to perspective things in Paul's life that Paul is able to see that what's going on behind the scenes is not what he can just see and feel with his eyes in every circumstance. That the afflictions, the perplexing circumstances, the times where he has no idea what's going on in his life, those aren't all there is. That there's something else happening. There's something happening within Paul himself. And that we can be sure, guys, that in every single conversation, every moment, every car ride, there's something happening within us. That, that the old us, the outer self, is decaying. It's falling away. It's, it's sloughing off. But the new self, the inner self that's in Christ, is being renewed. It's becoming the true us. And that puts things into perspective when, when you got to go to work and you have that awkward conversation about Jesus with your coworker, right? That what's happening there is not just what meets the eye. There's something profound. There's something that we can't see there. That the inner self, the part of us that's in Christ, is being renewed. There's transformation happening. As Steve preached about a few weeks ago, that as we were beholding the glory of God, we were being changed from one degree of glory to another. And Paul says that we're able to put on these glasses, in a sense, to see what's happening behind the scenes in every single circumstance because of who God is, because of God's power in every circumstance, because of God's promises, we're able to have this perspective. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He takes this idea and he draws it out into the realm of eternity. He puts this in light of eternity. Look at verse 17. For this light momentary affliction. Is that amazing or what? Paul is able to say, he has the perspective to say, I am afflicted, I am perplexed, I am persecuted, I am to the absolute end of myself, I am beaten, I have been dragged through streets, and I'm being doubted by you, Corinthians, but in the grand scheme of things, it is a light 
momentary affliction. It's paper cuts in light of eternity. Not only that, look what he says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the Greek, it's the beyond all comparison is literally from exceeding greatness to exceeding greatness. That Paul's having to use uh, language that, that fails us. It doesn't satisfy what he's talking about here. That the eternal realities that Paul is talking about are so big that it's just, it's like Buzz Lightyear from infinity to beyond. We don't have the words for it. But you can see the comparison that he's drawing of light and momentary and eternal weight. Light, weighty, momentary, eternal. How can Paul say that the hardest moments in life are nothing but a light, momentary affliction? Because in light of eternity, they are. It's like comparing the sun to a golf ball. It doesn't compare. The hardest moments, the hardest trials, the things that we face even day in and day out in the grand scheme of things are paper cuts. Not only that, but they're even doing something. This is an amazing, incredible work of God that the very afflictions that we go through every single day, the things that would discourage us and make us want to lose heart are the very things that are actually preparing us for glory. That without these afflictions, we would not have what is waiting for us in eternity. That they're working, they're productive, they're doing something. They're not in vain. Isn't that one of our greatest fears, that we would suffer in vain? Paul says it's the farthest thing from the truth. They couldn't be doing more for you. So what does this look like, practically speaking, then? Like, that's, that's great, Paul. God's powerful. God's promises are sure. Yes, I love those realities. Yes, that changes my perspective. But what do I need to do today when I walk out those front doors? Look at verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Guys, have y'all ever considered that maybe we're so easily tempted to lose heart because we're looking at the wrong things. How often is your counsel to yourself or to others based off scripture? How often do you ponder the resurrection? How often do you think about the fact that God is using your afflictions to produce something good? How often do you ever long for the glory of God and eternity outside of a Sunday morning. I feel that. I'm distracted daily. But Paul says that the key to it is to be able to see what is unseen. That is something that Christ has died to give us. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had a, a guy ask me a, an amazing question. I love this question. He said, um, do you enjoy having an eternal perspective? And my first thought was, man, I do not have an eternal perspective near as much as I ought. I am honored that you would even ask me that. Because by 9 a.m., I've been distracted by coffee or lack thereof, traffic, breakfast, my need for an oil change. Like, there's so many things that I'm distracted by on a daily basis that I'm not thinking in terms of eternal perspective. But as I was preparing for this sermon, that question just kept on coming up in my mind. 
Do I enjoy having an eternal perspective? And I just kept thinking that an eternal perspective a lot of times is our lifeline, isn't it, Christians? That in light of eternity, these things that can just seem so dominant in front of our face, we can say are light, momentary afflictions. The paper cuts. And not only that, but they're doing something. An eternal perspective, how can we think Christianly without it? How can we endure? How can we not lose heart without seeing that there's more than this world? So you see what keeps us from losing heart. You see what keeps Paul from losing heart. That it isn't our strength, it isn't our willpower, our grit. It's God's power and our utter dependence on God's promises that gives us perspective to see the world as it is, to see the things that are happening actually behind the scenes. You know, uh, astronauts who go into space for the first time I wouldn't know by experience, but so I've been told. Astronauts go into space for the first time, they have what's called an overview effect. And they go into space and they see the world in its bigness. They said it's, um, I think I heard one person say, imagine it's like a light bulb with all of the colors of Earth. You don't even want to look at it. It just seems too big, too amazing. And in that moment, all of the conflicts, the politics, national borders, all of that is kind of relativized in a moment with the bigness of the world in sight. Well, in a sense, what Paul's doing here is giving us an overview effect of the Christian life. He zooms in real close and he looks at the afflictions and the pains and the perplexing moments of being a Christian in everyday life. And then he spans it back and he zooms out really big and he shows everything as it is. He shows everything in the light of eternity. And it shows us the kind of perspective that we can have. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't lament. It doesn't mean that trials aren't genuinely hard. It doesn't mean that we don't cry. But it does put everything into perspective. Now we lament in view of eternity. Suffering is real. It hurts. It's hard. But it's not pointless. And it's not all there is. There's more to it. So when you're utterly confused about what in the world God is doing in your life, I encourage you this week, don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. Look to God's unchanging, immutable character. Man, I, I love hearing Patty O'Brien talk about how the immutable, unchanging character of God has been a rock, an anchor to her in this season that they're in. And there's stories like that all around this church. Look at God's character. Look at the cross where Christ gave his life for you. Look at his perfect obedience on your behalf. Look at the resurrection, the tomb that's empty, that is now a sign of your forgiveness. Look to the day when Christ will ultimately come back and we'll see him face to face. And every affliction, every trial will have found its ultimate end and will have never been in vain. It was shown at the end that it was totally and utterly worth it. I encourage you, don't lose heart. God is powerful. His promises are sure. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you 
are so good that you would see fit to send your son to die on our behalf. That you would purchase these gifts that, you've, that we've talked about today. That you would allow us to be able to trust in your power and your goodness and your purposes and your promises, God. And that you would allow us to even have the perspective to see some of the things that you're doing behind the scenes. And God, I just ask that you would keep these people, all of us here, from losing heart. God, as we're discouraged and we're faced with trials of many, many kinds, God, that you would keep us faithful. You would keep us discipling. You would keep us testifying to the work of Christ in our life. That you would keep us holding fast to Christ. That we would hold on to him because of who you are and what you've done and what you promised to do. God, we love you and we trust you. We thank you for all your abundant gifts and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.